I'm Jenny Jones and this is Jen's Green Jam. I'm the Green Party peer in the House of Lords and I'm interested in promoting a dialogue based around the Green perspective on various issues in British politics. And each podcast I bring on a guest to discuss an issue which is important to me or to the Green Party. And then we conclude by considering counter-arguments you might hear. So today I'm with Green Party councillor Shane Collins. Shane and I worked together for many years. We were just discussing how we met and it was back in 1989 when we were both activists and (laughs) green activists. And uh, Shane moved to Froome and he got himself elected to Mendip District Council. So hi, Shane. Afternoon. Hi. Now, in, um, I have to ask about the District Council first because it, it was so exciting because you um, increased the number of members, didn't you? Number yes. Of councillors. Um, yes. I mean, in Mendip, we went from having three green councillors to having ten green councillors, which was the biggest uh, rise of green councillors in the country. And the ruling Conservatives went from 31 councillors to 10, so they are now the official opposition along <laughs> with us. Um, and the Lib Dems went from 11 to 22, so with a couple of independents, they now have control, and we're working very closely on climate change in particular. I put a climate change motion, climate emergency and ecological motion, which got passed with cross-party support in February. So we're now working out a common policy programme based around the climate emergency that we will support them 100% on or push them very hard if they don't go along with it. So at the moment, it's working very well, and that was simply because we targeted our candidates. We didn't split the anti-Tory vote, um, so the Greens stood against the Conservatives in seven seats, and we won them all because we didn't have anybody else splitting the anti-Tory vote. That's absolutely fantastic. So um, I look forward to coming and visiting and seeing all your councillors. Me too. In a previous episode of Jen's Green Jam, I spoke to an ex-undercover police officer, Neil Woods, about the war on drugs and how it's affected law enforcement. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about Britain's drug policy, our green drug policy a bit, and thinking about the case for reform. So... um, Perhaps we can set the scene. Why should people be interested in drug policy at all? Uh, Well, I suppose the initial point is it criminalises probably half the population. I guess probably half the population now have taken some form of illicit drugs over their lifetime. Including Tory candidates for Prime Minister? Yes, yes. I mean, it's no surprise now. Um, um, so that's the initial point. It's a bit ridiculous having a law if more than half the population is therefore deemed a criminal. Um, lots of other reasons, really, it, it doesn't work. Its stated aim is to cut drug use. Ever since it came in in '71, uh, drug use has continued to go up. Um, obviously, if you prohibit something for which there is a demand, all you do is create a criminal market. And into that vacuum falls all sorts of people. I think the Home Office estimated there's around about half a million people involved in the illicit drugs trade. But the part of that that really concerns us is the sort of postcode gangs, is the estate gangs, because behind most of, I would estimate, most of the sort of stabbings and nice crimes you hear about in London, there are little estate gangs arguing over turf wars, over sale of drugs. Um, and so if... Um, Home you mean office. to police this drugs law because it's unrealistic? Yes, I mean, it's estimated around about £18 billion pounds in prison time, court time, police time, another £16 billion pounds dealing with the effects of crack and smack and feeding a habit. 
and the thievery and stealing and burglaring that goes on as a result of that. So it's just pretty effective, ineffective on all levels. Now, I know that the Green Party's drugs policy is currently under review. Um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about that, um, you know, why and when and so on. Um, this morning, um, it, uh, reading it, it was obvious that it's a very old policy, but still fairly valid. But we're looking at it again. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, when we, we updated the Green, policy, the Green Party drugs policy back around the turn of the millennium, and basically, we moved it from decriminalisation to regulated legalisation. We went into some detail about how to deal with cannabis because there was a policies that worked around the world, and we roughly followed the Dutch model. Um, so heavily licensed, only sale of cannabis, strict age limits. If any other drug is on the scene, the licensee would lose their licence. Um, and for other drugs, we didn't feel we had the expertise then to come up with detailed analysis and policies. So we simply left it to a legalising royal commission to decide upon the, the methods of, of legalisation for each individual drug. So the new Green Party Drugs Group, um, which I haven't been involved in, but they are doing absolutely wonderful stuff. I'm on the WhatsApp group and follow the policy, but I'm a bit engaged elsewhere at the moment. But they are looking at how each individual drug could be regulated and dealt with. So some would be you know, licensed via doctors, some via pharmacies, some via off-license sales, some by the equivalent of on-sales. On um, and they've come up with a pretty detailed view of how each different drug would be regulated. So that's a draft policy at the moment, and I imagine at next conference it will go for full vote as a full voting paper. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm always looking for opportunities to put bills here in Parliament, and that sounds detailed enough to actually be the basis for quite a lot of questions, debates, and possible legislation from from me. That's thinking about it selfishly. Yes, you know. yes. Well, <laughs> sounds <we're>... very useful. <laughs> uh, I mentioned just now the Tory um, MPs and the, and the Prime Minister hopefuls taking drugs. It does say something that they, you know, they've taken cannabis and cocaine and and opium and this is rank hypocrisy isn't it when they refuse to change the drug laws it is it is i mean we live in a complete policy dichotomy we have a policy that is not based on any evidence at all um it's based on i think fear of the sort of the middle ground the middle media the daily mail the daily express that they will kick off if there is any changes to the drug policy so now, broadly speaking, British politics is based around that 15% swing vote in the middle who, by and large, are you know, family-based, getting on with life, fairly small-c conservative, um, Daily Mail readers, this sort of thing. And uh, the two main political parties are terrified of, of scaring off that middle 15% because we have a first-past-the-post voting system, which means they sort of have to. If we had PR, this wouldn't be an issue. Well, it also um, it also means that, in fact, we should get everybody signed up to vote because there's a lot of people who don't vote, particularly young people. If we could get them voting, then things could be different, even under our terrible system at the moment. Yes, I mean, one of the first reasons I got involved in, in drug policy was because I saw so many people who I'd been involved with on road protests, on Reclaim the Streets, on Brixton activities who felt absolutely marginalised through 
their choice of drug and the drug policy. And so they retreated from getting involved in politics, didn't register to vote. If they were, they didn't vote because they just saw a system that uh, was extremely unfair to them. And illogical. Yes, absolutely. There's no sense to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why should somebody's choice of drug um, influence their criminality or not? When you know the, the, the what drugs are illegal are not based on how dangerous they are. Um, some of the big things that people worry about with drugs are the addiction potential and the impact on the NHS and on people's individual health as well. So, how do you think we best address those concerns? Well, I mean, the the hard drug associated with cannabis use is, of course, tobacco, which is the most dangerous drug by an awful long way. Um, so it, we need to have better education on that, basically. Um, cannabis needs to be regulated, licensed and for sale on its own. Um, but because it is pushed underground, um, those sort of health warnings just get 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 lost, really. I've never really taken drugs. It's never been my thing. I mean, cannabis probably half a dozen times, alcohol, not every day, but and, and caffeine most days. And so I don't really see the... I mean, it sounds naive. I don't really see the attraction of drugs that actually make you feel really ill. But presumably, most people manage their consumption. Yes, I mean, we've got to remember, people take drugs because they make them feel good. there's there's no getting away from it a lot of drugs do make people feel slightly better whether it's a a drink a glass or two of red wine after a long day or a spliff after a long day you know it makes people feel better and what we're after is you know fun maximization harm minimization Um, and we need to have a, a policy accordingly every culture throughout history has always had some sort of drug to give it release, and we are no different. The the Green Party drugs policy from, I think, 1998 says something about um, people have always taken psychiatric... Psychotic. Psychotic drugs. No, 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 no. no, no. We mean... Psychedelic. No, no. Psychoactive. Psychoactive drugs. (laughs) And they always will, you know. And and in fact, um, they recently um, found some cannabis uh, stones from 4,500 years ago. Um, So this has been going on a long time. And it's something that uh, nobody seems to have the courage to... I mean, you touched on this, the fact... Everybody's trying to coalesce around middle ground and nobody's really got the, um, the, the enthusiasm and the bravery to take it forward. And so um, it's quite exciting. The Green Party is doing something about this and is coming up with a quite complex drugs policy yeah. based on individual drugs impact. Yeah, I mean, we have form on this. We, we brought out the first ecstasy testing kits in Britain in, when was it, November 1998. Um, and we were selling them and doing ecstasy testing at parties and festivals. Um, and what's that nigh on sort of 20, 25, 20 years ago? Um, so things really haven't moved on. We, we thought with Blunkett in the early noughties that there was some progress being made when um, there was three heroin prescription trial areas started 
all of which have had amazingly successful results, i.e. an increase in health outcomes and a decrease in crime outcomes. Um, but both shades of government have failed to take that on. Uh, consequently, we still have a much, much higher rate of smack and crack addiction compared to pretty much every other country. Um, and therefore, we have a much higher crime rate. Um, and we have a more strapped police force who are obviously dealing with lots of cuts. Um, but, you know, in, in, in Brixton, um, famously, Brian Paddock came to that conclusion that we need to focus on crack and smack and addictive drugs. And really, there was a very little concern about somebody smoking a, a joint or growing a few plants at home. Um, but as I say, things really haven't moved on. Um, so here we are now on 20 years later and we have got, you know, postcode gang wars over turf wars. It's, it's, it's pathetic. It really is. Well, Britain's current drug policy has been described as the greatest criminal opportunity in history. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, what happens if drugs do become legalised in some way? How do, we, how do we get from here to there... Do, what happens to all the criminal gangs? They just turn into respectable business people or, you know... I mean, it's a big shift, isn't it, that we're looking for? It is a big shift. And I mentioned the, the, the Home Office guesstimate of figures of about half a million people being involved in the production, distribution and, and sale of drugs. Um, we have to make sure that there is still a way in. And one of the interesting things they're doing in, in, uh, in California is... <clears throat> when cannabis is getting legalised, they make sure that people who have been criminalised by their use of cannabis, they get jobs in the new cannabis farms. Um, uh, we have to move people basically off the street and into licensed supply, um, and we need to cut people's prim criminal record for drug convictions because that is so hugely, hugely... Um, problematic in this day and age where you know your cv requires a criminal rec criminal check and if you got caught with a spliff 20 years ago that's still on your record and that would stop you opening up a licensed coffee shop in the future um, the other thing that we definitely would allow is people to grow cannabis at home um, this is already happening around the country and interestingly it looks like the way that the drugs laws are changing now and particularly the cannabis laws is through police and crime commissioners deciding they have limited resources so let's target them. So there's a few places around the country in particular Durham where people are allowed to grow small amounts of cannabis at home, nine plants per person, they can do it as a cooperative um, Who decided on that figure, nine plants? Uh, I don't know. I think it was sort of, I think at the moment, it, roughly it's 12 plants. If you've got more than 12 plants, then they can do you for dealing and supply. But if it's under 12, then it's considered to be personal. Um, so these sort of things are gradually happening with sort of understandings between the cannabis growers and, and police and crime commissioners. Um, so we would definitely, even in a new legalised environment, allow people to grow their own because that completely avoids any finance and that would be the ideal situation where people grew for themselves. Um, and if they wanted to sell social supply to friends, you know, I don't think the state has, has a 
it would be ridiculous for the state to try and stop that. Now, it does look as if the government's finally softening its stance on medicinal cannabis, and that apparently they're due to publish some new guidance later this year. Do we need... Do, do, do we know anything about that? Do we... Um, you know. We know they've been procrastinating and prevaricating. They introduced legalisation, what, nine on a year ago to allow doctors to prescribe um, cannabis, and there have been various things that have got in the way. Um, just to make a general, broader point, we, we need to be careful about making a free plant into a very, very expensive medicine. Um, you know, cannabis has known medical properties. Anybody can grow it in their back garden. It just costs you a seed. Um, but some of the cannabis products coming onto the NHS are exceptionally expensive, and even these the synthetic cannabis products, Marinol, and these sort of things. So we need to be careful not to make a free plant into a very expensive medicine for the NHS, because there's no doubt lots of people want it. Um, how, how, do you make, usefulness. how do you make cannabis that you grow into uh, medicinal use type cannabis? I mean, is, <laughs> it, is it relatively simple? You make sure you grow the right plants and get them tested. You want broadly um, a higher uh, CBD content, the cannabinol oils, um, which have a, a more of a medical effect and less of the THC, the tetrahydrocannabinols, which get people stoned. Um, but you don't want... It, it needs to be a mixture. But it would help a lot if there was public testing so that people could tell what they're growing and know what they're growing. Most growers know anyway because they sort of have strains and they get seeds from plants they've grown. Um, but it would help a lot if there was a public service available. It would also help a lot if the drugs database, based on when police conversate drugs, if that database was made public. In particular for ecstasy, there's a lot of dodgy ecstasy pills that have been around um, instead of keeping that information secret, why not publicise it so that the dangerous pills get spotted? That, I mean, that's really interesting. It's the sort of um, thing we can easily ask the government to, to do something about. You mentioned California just now as having quite a, a forward-thinking policy on this. Is there anywhere else in the world that we could emulate? I mean, uh, Holland, for example, you said as well. Um, yes, I mean, Holland had a problem back in the, what was it, I think it was the 70s. They decided that the, the heroin addiction rate was going up. Um, and so they made the policy decision to separate supply of cannabis from heroin. So cannabis went into licensed coffee shops um, and that enabled them to focus resources on heroin addiction, which starting with heroin on prescription through, through the medical service. Um, <coughs> and so 20 years later, the heroin addiction rate in Holland is about half what it is in Britain, consequently far higher crime in Britain, far higher police hassles. Um, other places more recently, the United States, I think it's up to about seven or eight states now, um, allow regulated sale of cannabis. Um, the net effect of that has been a huge, huge influx of taxes for, in particular, Colorado and Washington State who started So they're it. profiting from it? Absolutely. I think it was something like $24 million a month coming in in, in, in Colorado. Um, now there is more sales tax from cannabis than from alcohol in Colorado, 
with the obvious savings in police and prison time. I mean, in, in America, with its huge, huge prison population, around about, around about two million people in prison, of which about half of those are for drugs. Um, so you have a prison industry that is extremely supportive of the current trade laws, prison unions who are very supportive of the trade laws, but the state governments are recognising that they're getting a net income from taxation and they're saving huge amounts of money in police and courts and prison time. And taking it away from the, um, the drug merchants and the drug suppliers. Yes, and yeah. interestingly, Mexico has also offered America to sort out legal situations of which the federal government in America has said not at all. They're not interested at all. So uh, one, of, one of the things about drugs being illegal is that obviously drugs are about the third biggest trade in the world after oil and, uh, oil and then arms and then illicit drugs. And people. And Yes, I think that's getting up there. But it does allow whoever controls the drug trade to do things undercover because that money doesn't go through a legal system. And you know, talking about America, um, the, just to go back to the early 80s, 1982, the Contras and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, when Congress stopped American help directly going to the Contras because they were a pretty dodgy bunch who took to killing a lot of people. Uh, the CIA stepped in, Ollie North and all that bunch, and decided to funnel drug money to the Contras undercover. So basically they let a certain amount of drug dealers in who they knew had ties to the Contras. They would let them operate with impunity coming into Los Angeles. Through Los Angeles it got into the Bloods and the Crips gangs which then went out to every black ghetto in every city in the States. And the only deal was that the drug runners had to put money back to the Contras. And then, of course, the CIA helped by selling them lots of weapons to defend their turf. The Bloods and the Crips took that on. And so you got to the stage by the mid-'80s where gangs were using grenade launchers a few blocks from the White House to sort out turf wars. And that's when Clinton came down with the three strikes and you're out, and instead of blaming the CIA, who brought out the Hitch report that actually admitted what they'd been doing on the day of Clinton's impeachment proceedings in Congress. So that got nicely buried. But, you know, from Vietnam, um, Afghanistan, these illicit drugs have allowed American foreign policy to do what they want to do undercover. So, you know, with that amount of money, it, it corrupts people on all levels. That's governments. Police corruption, you know, in particular in areas in the world where police aren't well paid, but we know also in Britain there has been a lot of police corruption um, and uh, probably a case where it never quite came to, to full publicity was the Stephen Lawrence case. Um, it's well known that the McPherson report concluded that the police were institutionally racist. Uh, what the McPherson didn't report didn't comment on because they weren't given the papers was about police corruption and Eltham, Elton police contact with uh, David Norris, who was a large-scale South East London drug dealer whose son was heavily implicated in Stephen Lawrence's murder. Um, customs and excise photographed Norris giving brown packages to police in pubs. 
Um, there was obviously about 12 or 14 descriptions going into the Elton Police Station days after Stephen Lawrence was murdered. Uh, it seems pretty pretty likely that Norris's you know, large-scale drug dealer's contact with the police in Eltham delayed the investigation. So whilst the police may or may not have been institutionally racist, they were also institutionally corrupt there's, because of drug money which didn't come out. There's so enough material there for books and, and films and... Private Eye covered it really, really well. Yes. So yes. that's how, you know, governments, police, but then also on a more individual level, um, people getting turned by the police to tell tales on other people. And so you get a situation of distrust in your community. Mm. If, if you're a, a cannabis smoker, uh, you're not likely to trust your neighbour. If you've been... House has been burgled with some, by somebody with a crack or smack addict. You're not likely to trust your neighbours quite so much. There's a certain reticence of, to open up. I, I so, wanted to, I wanted to ask you, what do you think in terms of changing our drug policy nationally? Uh, is there anything that communities and even individuals can do to actually get the government to share? I mean, apart from lobbying your MP and and so on. Are there, are, what can people do? I think lobbying your police and crime commissioner actually is, is the, the weak spot at the moment in the system because they're having to deal with cuts to policing um, and they're having to deal with lots of people who smoke weed who are quite honestly are not criminals. They may be in difficult straits um, economically and housing and educationally which makes them more visible to the police but it's generally reckoned around about 10% of the British population smoke cannabis. It's, it's the biggest illicit drug by a long way. It's probably 80% of illicit drug sales. Um, so if we could get those people on side um, and not at loggerheads with the police, then the police will be thought of slightly more as citizens in uniform and people will be prepared to talk to the police to deal with crack and smack because that is what is destroying our communities. In my limited experience of the police, um, they do mostly support drug policy reform because they see that they're just wasting their time. You know, you, you arrest a few people and then a few more come up and, you know, you don't actually stop the trade. I, I want to move on now to some of the things people might say to you when you're you know, arguing against you. Um, for example, if drugs were legal, people would take more and more and more people would die. What would you say? Um, that was the case in Holland. Um, there was an initial rise in people taking cannabis because you know, a certain amount of the population didn't smoke cannabis because they, it was illegal and they didn't want to do that. Um, a certain amount of the population did smoke cannabis because it was illegal and it was the sort of forbidden fruit effect. So what happened in Holland was that there was a a small blip as people who hadn't smoked it before because it was illegal thought, oh, I'll try that now it's, now it's legal. Um, it pretty soon dropped down, and obviously the forbidden fruit effect, you know, most Dutch youth regard cannabis as a bit boring. They want to have um, alcohol because that's more of an upper. Um, so, you know, so there was an initial rise and then a drop. I mean, a lot less people, young people in particular, smoke cannabis in Holland than they do compared to Britain. But if you had because harder... Because of the forbidden, forbidden fruit effect. If you had harder drugs, then people might actually... More people might overdose and die if, if they're sort of experimenting. <coughs> yes, but we're not proposing that harder drugs such as crack or smack be available over the counter. 
um, they, their licence would be restricted purely to the NHS. So it would be heroin prescription rooms, crack cocaine prescription rooms, that would be used as a way to draw addicts in for clean, safe heroin or crack. Heroin is probably a better example, which doesn't require them thieving to find the money to get it. Um, and also, you know, people can survive on heroin. Medically, people have been on diamorphine for years. Um, it's not a recommended. It's not recommended, but you know, it's physically possible. Um, so once people are getting free doses of clean heroin, that sort of stabilises their life, and then that should be a way into all sorts of treatments aiming at getting people off heroin. But those other treatments can't be mandatory. They have to be voluntary. Um, now, uh, people also say that drugs cause crime. They do. Yeah. I mean, prohibited drugs cause crime. Um, drugs on the NHS don't cause crime. Uh, people also say that criminalisation of drugs has been effective. Uh, I'd like to see other evidence from that. Um, the government has looked into this in quite some detail, um, in particular in the Number 10 Strategy Unit in about 2003, and found that it had failed on all counts. Um, of course, they didn't release that study until it was leaked a few years later to The Guardian, but um, even the government's evidence admits that it has failed on all counts. Um, it hasn't stopped people taking drugs. There's been an increase. There's been a vast increase in crime and a vast problem with relationships with the police. And, and you know, we're in London. Knife crime seems to be the moral epidemic. It has been for some time now. Um, Certainly when I was on the board member of the Lambeth Community Police Consultative Group, about 70% of all stop and searches were, I think you've got some drugs on you, Macy. So it wasn't quite the sus laws that we had in the Brixton in the 80s, but it was slightly shooting fish in a barrel because it's quite likely that many young kids would have a bit of weed on them. Um, that doesn't mean to say they're criminals in the conventional sense, but it did mean that the relationship between the police and young people in the community went badly wrong and still is. And the degree of trust there is minimal. And in particular now with safer neighbourhood teams getting decimated and a lack of youth workers. Now, we need to flood the drugs market with youth workers, not police. And of course, there's a huge racial um, bias when the police are doing stop and search. I mean, that's, that's still true. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, that's still true. Um, if you're if you're black and in possession of a hoodie, um, you're and, and a getting lot a lighter. criminal record and going to prison perhaps, and then it affects all your job opportunities, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's just it, you couldn't actually come up with the system better designed to fail if you tried. Um, something else somebody might say is that medicinal cannabis is just a Trojan horse for a more liberal drugs policy generally. Well, certainly. To have medicinal cannabis, you know, you've got to look at things more liberally um, because we have failed in that in the past. I mean, we, Britain is one of the main countries that sell medicinal cannabis, but it all goes abroad. Um, you know, we have the drugs minister's husband, who's a very large investor in, um, uh, what are they called, uh, J, JW Pharmaceuticals, um, um, JW... Uh, yeah, I think it's JW Pharmaceuticals. It's big business now. 
um, as it should be, because it's an exceptionally effective plant, which has been known about for millennium. Um, so, yes, the government is... I, I, I don't know. I don't know why they don't do it. It seems, you know, policy should be based on evidence. We have a clear evidence base for this, but we have prejudice. We have, I don't know, puritanism, sort of people worried about the fact that other people may be having a better time than them. So we better stop it. I think there's still a danger of that as a part of that. Um, but it is utterly illogical and is doing tremendous damage. I, I want to say thank you very much for talking to me today. Um, it's um, whenever anybody comes on the podcast and talks about drugs, it's always a bit of a downer, actually. So um, it's very good to hear that the Green Party is actually pushing on with um, some really good policy. And I, I look forward to uh, reading that. And I want to say, could you send my love to all your new councillors and just say how excited I am that they're there and actually pushing at what we, what we hope now is an open door um, towards a better sort of climate policy. Yes, I certainly will. I mean, I'm delighted to say pretty much all our council candidates came up to Extinction Rebellion and were one of the affinity groups on Waterloo Bridge. Uh, more than half of them got arrested. Um, lots of people from Froome came up. And, and when we left Extinction Rebellion after 11 days of Marble Arch, we were canvassing um, in Froome and in Mendip, and the reaction was absolutely fantastic. And our vote went up on a much, much reduced turnout. And as I say, we decimated the Tories. And now the Lib Dems, who are very grateful to the Greens because we came up with the ideas that got them in. Um, but we have common purpose on climate emergency um, in Mendip and all the other district councils in Somerset and on the county council. So in the next six months... We are really going to be moving on that, and Extinction Rebellion also is going to be focusing on councils and climate and ecological emergencies, so there'll be fun to be had. I think Extinction Rebellion actually has got through to a demographic that just didn't think about these issues before. You know, I mean, obviously Blue Planet and David Attenborough, I think that reached through to the, the middle classes, but I think Extinction Rebellion, for some reason, it's actually got a much wider appeal and people are actually thinking more deeply. And, of course, um, to be selfish again, it helps me in the House of Lords because all of a sudden um, even Conservatives are, you know, they've always talked a little bit green, but now they're talking greener. They're not acting greener, obviously, but they're, they're yeah, talking. We, on, on Mendip, we got the Conservatives complete support for our climate and emergency motion, and I think they saw which way the wind was blowing. We'd asked for 80 grand for a staff member to push it through, they increased it to 100 grand um, because they can see the writing on the wall. And I think the other thing Extinction Rebellion has done is, is um, it's broadened the vocabulary. We can now talk about the possibilities of extinction, which prior to that, I was always quite wary of doing. It's not well, People exactly think a, it's overstating the case and all yes. that sort of thing, but now it's, it's legitimate uh, language. Now, you know, we know that in 70... 80 years at most, uh, unless we change, probably the world's carrying capacity will be down to about a billion people. And that's presuming we don't get the methate gun, clathrate methate gun going off in, in, in the meantime and millions of tonnes of methane suddenly erupting from the Arctic sea floor. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're faced with 70, 80 years of possible 
extinction of a lot of species, and if we're not very careful, us as well. There's loads of material there we could carry on for ages. <laughs> I just want to say thank you very much. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and want to find out more, then you can check out my episode with Neil Woods, the undercover police officer who exposed the phony war on drugs, and he had some really shocking stories. I'm making regular podcasts on a variety of issues, and if you subscribe to Jen's Green Jam on your platform of choice, you'll be the first to hear each new episode. Thank you very much. Thank you.